Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we celebrate tax time. Stick around for our thoughts. It's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Good to see you as well. What is going on, my friend? Oh, man. It's Master's Week. By the time this airs, the Master's will be over. I am currently desperately hoping that somebody will beat Brooks Kepka, but it looks like he's going to take a pretty strong lead into the weekend. Oh, yeah. He's, He's running away from the field right now is what's happening. Correct. Now, I have talked on our show before about how I basically have an inability to make like financial cuts that make any sense. They always come back and bite me. And this almost happened to me again. And I think I've solved it this time, Dan. I'm very proud of a very simple thing that I shouldn't really be proud of. But let me tell you what happened. So I've been using YouTube TV as like my primary live TV option. Uh, I like YouTube TV, but I basically only need it during sports I care about, which for me, for the most part, is football. I don't watch a ton of golf outside of like some of the majors. And so I canceled it. So number one, like, yeah, at the end of February, I was like, okay, cool. They announced a price increase was coming. And so it was going from like 65 bucks to $72 a month, which isn't nothing. And I was like, I'm not watching that much live TV. Let's go ahead and shut this down. And then I get to master's week and I was like, oh man, I'm either going to end up going to like a bar and watching the masters somewhere and spending more than the $65 I saved just to, to watch it somewhere else that has the coverage playing, or I'm going to cave and end up rebuying this thing to watch a couple days worth of golf. Also streaming on the Paramount plus network for four 99. I have gotten my master's coverage back. I did not have to go back and get YouTube TV, but I've got it again. I get to watch the groups that I want to watch. I solved it without it completely blowing up my one silly, I'm going to cut a corner financial decision. But I almost thought it happened to me again. Well, this may blow your mind. There is also an app that streams the Masters for free. I know. I know. But then you have to watch it on the computer. Yeah, I I just I wanted I wanted it on my big television. That's where I needed that to happen. Maybe I could have gotten to it through like the web browser on the TV, but that's a pretty bad experience. I might be the only psychopath who watches stuff on my phone, uh, but having it in my pocket is pretty dangerous because anytime I'm sitting for more than two minutes, I just pop on the featured groups and check out what's happening. Yeah. In any case, I was very proud. I feel like that's such a silly thing to be proud of to have basically saved 60 bucks this month on not paying for YouTube TV. But as a person that has difficulty making some of those simple cuts, I was pretty happy with myself. Yeah, you can treat yourself to a night out now. That's it. And uh, hopefully, all of our listeners out there are celebrating not Brooks Kepka this week as the new <laughs> Masters champion. We'll see. There's an amateur in the running, too. Uh, let's see if he can carry that through the weekend. What a story that would be. Like That, that would be incredible. I hope that that's the result to see. Uh, he, yeah, he's like a 23-year-old amateur that right now I think is in second. I would love to see him make a charge and win. Yeah, that'd be amazing. So apparently we don't lose people when we have tax talk or underwriting talk. I wonder if we lose people when we have golf talk. 
Let's hope not, because we're going to cut it pretty short, because it is a tax talk episode. We're, we're <laughs> in tax season. Taxes are due this week, or at least for filing, if you haven't extended or you're not planning to extend. First quarter payments are due if you're making estimated quarterly payments. There's a lot of tax stuff to talk about, Dan, and I feel like it's come across our desks in a number of ways recently. Uh, and there's a few things to get into here. So what have you heard people talking about tax-wise? What's come up for you? The biggest thing that I've heard more this year than before, for reasons unknown to me, are people who are getting their returns back and automatically wondering if their withholding is is right for them. Because they are either getting a large refund or they're owing a large amount of money and want to solve that problem. Because they're both a problem. Ideally, you would have the timing right in both directions. Yeah, so the old line about getting a big refund used to be that you're making an interest-free loan to the government. You're letting the government hang on to your money. And for the past decade, it's basically been like, what interest? Who cares? Like, you're, you aren't earning any interest on your savings anyway. So what's the difference in allowing the government to hang on to your money for the last 12 months? Now, I think that situation has changed a little bit. You're seeing risk-free rates and savings account rates north of 4% these days. That's a reminder to upgrade your savings account for any of our listeners that haven't done that already. But that's a very, very nice piece of low-hanging fruit. We can hang out there for you. But yeah, it's no longer a interest-free environment. So you truly are making an interest-free loan to the government if you're allowing them to hang on to your money at this point. The other thing is some people who are getting refunds are having cash flow issues throughout the year that could be solved by just fixing their withholdings. If they're having more of that money flow through their paycheck on a regular basis, it might feel less tight for them month by month. And you can find opportunities to save throughout the year instead of having to square up at the end of the year, which can feel stressful. Now, that is the one thing that has always been a benefit for people that are getting the huge tax refund that are otherwise challenged savers. That's right? true. If, if even, even if you're going to look at it and go, yeah, it's an interest-free loan to the government, if you're having trouble on a month-to-month basis making that disciplined savings decision and putting money away and not touching it for the mid to longer term, you may just want to keep over withholding. That might be the right answer for you. I wish I could remember the name of this book I was reading, but it was talking about ways in which companies try to solve problems for low income earners or people with cash flow problems that are not truly beneficial to those people. And one of them was creating expensive services to try to help automate savings when in reality, the cost of these services would be better served to those people to spend money. This sounds like something like that. It's like, yeah, it's costing you an interest to have the government hold your money. But if you would otherwise be spending it and not saving it, maybe that's a trade-off worth making. Hopefully, you're instituting better things throughout the year to actually fix the problem instead of you know, just taking the easy, low-hanging fruit. Yeah, no, and I think, again, I give our listening audience a lot of credit, both in terms of the types of questions that we get in, as well as just generally, I think, the category of people that listen to personal finance podcasts. So I don't think that that's something our, our group is facing as often, but definitely could be out there for, for other people. So if you're trying to fix your withholdings... The form that you need to play with typically is called the W-4. Ross, have you looked at a W-4 and tried to fill one out recently? It's been a little while. Um, I am very familiar with the W-4, both because I was prepping for this episode and because I think it is the the main solution point to what we're talking about today. But the W-4 paper form 
not super helpful. No, it is a pain in the butt. It looks easy on its face until you get into the nitty gritty of it. And you're realizing that, you know, if you live in a two person household, you each need to fill it out. What should you be doing for one versus the other? It gets complicated pretty quickly. And it's easy to make things worse if you don't know what you're doing while you're trying to solve a problem. I also think similarly, you see a lot of households where one spouse or one partner will get a new job. And as part of that new job, they fill out their W-4 and the other spouse doesn't update theirs. And that can be a source of some of the frustrations that I think people are running into that we hope we can help you fix through some simple advice today. So rather than the paper form, Dan, where do you send people? The IRS, I can't believe I'm saying this. The IRS has a very useful tool on its website called the Tax Withholding Estimator that walks you through step-by-step how to fill out your W-4 for your situation. Now, we'll add a link to this estimator in our show notes. Uh, I highly recommend using that. And there is actually a great guide on YouTube, since we're not going to sit here and walk you through how it works, a great guide on YouTube for how to use it, both for W-2 employees and also for business owners, if you're interested in using that um, that online tool for self-employment income. Yeah. So I think that that's the key is figuring out what your withholding should be. And, and we're talking about this for the majority of folks that are some portion of W-2 income. Now, you know, one of the things that can happen if you're self-employed, whether through a side hustle or just as a portion of your income, generally self-employed people are going to have to do some sort of quarterly estimated payments or something like that. But if you're in that bucket where you've got some self-employment income, where you're a contractor, you're basically filling out a Schedule C as part of your tax return, you can choose to increase the withholding at your job that has withholding to account for that self-employment tax. And so that's one of the things that I think is a little bit misunderstood, especially for new entrepreneurs or people that are starting a side hustle for the first time, is that they can deal with those business taxes through their primary job so that they don't end up at the end of the year playing catch-up. I think that's one of the easier ways to do it and was definitely my preferred way for a very long time. The government doesn't care what dollars you're using to pay them as long as you pay them. In fact, I actually think there's some really nice things about doing withholding rather than making estimated quarterly payments. So for example, withholding is treated as if it's been made throughout the year. So let's say and I realize we're talking about this at tax time, but if you're dealing with this situation and you've underwithheld for some reason, this is a good year to start kind of getting ahead of that. Increase the withholding now so that you get ahead of it for the end of this year. And if you get behind the eight ball here, you can crank that withholding lever really, really hard if you had to and maybe keep yourself away from some penalties that would be associated with underpaying your taxes. So, you know... We've been talking mostly about people that may have overwithheld and they're kind of giving the government that tax-free loan. Underwithholding is also a big problem. So for people that have been facing that either you know this year or in the past, one of the easier ways to look at it is just to plan for the safe harbor method. So this gets a little bit nitty-gritty here, but the safe harbor method, just to go over it, generally, you must pay 90% of your current year's taxes or 100% of what you paid last year to avoid a tax penalty. 
Now, for higher income earners, if your adjusted gross income was $150,000 or more, you actually have to get to 110% of what you paid last year. So if you made X number of dollars and the tax was due, as long as you get to 110% of that number for a higher income earner, you're going to avoid tax penalties. doesn't matter if you owe a million bucks next year. If you got to that safe harbor method, you're going to be okay. Um, and so I think that that's a very nice guideline for people on if they're worried about it, if they've got really big swings in their income and they're going to have trouble making the estimated payments in an accurate way, that's a pretty nice way to do it. Yeah, I agree. As a business owner where income can be volatile, having that benchmark to look at, that safe harbor number, makes things a lot easier. Because if I don't know where income is going to fall this year, at least I know I can potentially avoid penalties if I'm if I'm getting to at least 100 or 110% of prior year's taxes. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a nice benchmark for people to have in their mind. And then Ross was mentioning about cranking up withholdings at the end of the year. If you happen to have a W-2 job where you can have automated payroll tax withholdings, if you do not and want to also avoid the potential of a penalty, you can front load your taxes in the first quarterly payment. So if you're worried about having to make the right amount later in the year and you have some extra cash laying around because maybe last year's tax liability wasn't as big as you thought, you can dump some in extra at that first due date for quarterly payments and potentially avoid a penalty at the end of the year for underpayment because you're getting more money to them early on. You can also do that through your refund. So if you were owed a refund this year, you can simply apply that 2022 refund to your 2023 taxes. So that's another way to get ahead of it where, you know, again, I think as we deal with this on an individual client level, there's a bunch of moving parts. The the key moving parts are did we withhold in the ballpark of the right amount? Does income expect to be in the similar place, higher or lower next year? And then have we made big changes to things that might affect your taxes? So things like increasing your pre-tax 401k withholding, that's going to lower your tax bill at the end of the year. If you're switching from pre-tax, for example, or traditional to Roth, well, that may increase it because you're going to have more that is uh, taxable on your federal side, right? So there's a lot of things there in terms of where we're trying to move the needle. And then as Dan just mentioned, what's your cash flow situation? Are you strapped right now and you can get a, a you know, you need to get cash flow today and kind of push that tax payment into the future, I would prioritize the withholding and kind of look towards the things where I won't be penalized for doing it late. Or if you've got plenty of cash sitting around doing nothing, you can get ahead of it right now and you can make that big quarterly payment now so that you don't have to deal with it for the rest of the year. Bunch of different ways, depending on what you're worried about, where your personal situation has kind of fallen out. So that talks about addressing squaring up how much tax you may owe versus how much tax was withheld. The other thing I get asked a lot is what can I be doing to reduce my tax liability in general? So the one easiest thing I mentioned is between last year and this year, the caps for contributing to your 401k have gone up. So this year, if you're under age 50, you can defer $22,500 into a 401k, $30,000 if you're 50 or older. That's $2,000 more than last year. So I've seen so many people who set it years ago at the cap and then never adjust it, even though it does go up periodically. 
I mean, the same thing I find, and I think we've talked about this before, but the number of people that tell me they're maxing out their 401k, and then what it turns out they're doing is they're just putting in the maximum to get the biggest match. I I see that all the time where people have to put in 6% to get the match, and they go, I'm maxing out. And then you look and you go, no, you're not. You're not even close. There's a lot of headroom there. Now, that's not always the preferred place to put the money. If you've got access to a Roth IRA, if you're not earning too much for that, if you've got access to an HSA, that might be preferable. But strictly from a reducing taxes standpoint, that 401k is going to be one of the more powerful options for people that are not self-employed and have access to it. Because I think that's going to be the, the most common thing. And when we think about you know, how do I reduce my tax bill? For people that are W-2 employees, unfortunately, they're pretty limited. Our tax code has so much flexibility for an ownership structure. If you're the owner of a business, if you have capital gains or losses that you can try and move around inside your portfolio, there's a lot of flexibility on how you choose to accelerate or defer when taxes are going to be paid. For an employee, you may be limited there because if it's income, it's income. If they paid it to you this year, they paid it to you this year. If your stock vests this year on an RSU, uh, a restricted stock unit, that's taxable this year. That constructive receipt is really what drives the tax code. And if you're being paid as an employee, you've only got so many tools in your bag on how to deal with that. The other thing I get asked a lot about when reviewing taxes is, well, aren't charitable contributions a great way to limit my tax burden? To which they, the answer is... They could yeah. be. <laughs> right, they could be. But you're still giving money away. So you know, maybe you're reducing your taxable income. Maybe, by the way. But you still need to be charitably inclined and in making contributions for that to be a net positive. I would say one more thing there. You also need to be itemizing. The standard deduction is so high right now, the number of people that are not itemizing on their taxes is massive. If you're not close to maxing out or getting beyond the standard deduction today, making a charitable gift isn't going to do that much for you. So you already need to be at that level or above. Otherwise, the charitable gift may just not have enough horsepower to really make an impact on lowering your tax bill. Daniel Tosh, uh, who is a comic that I like quite a bit, he's pretty uh, pretty brash in terms of some of his bits, but he, he did a, a joke at one point talking about, you know, it's better than having a tax write-off is keeping all your money in your pocket. So he, he at least as, as a comic, brought that same fact to light. But uh, in the standard deduction world where, where it's as high as it is, that tends to have less impact unless you're doing really, really large charitable gifts. Uh, there's a great tax website called taxfoundation.org. I was just trying to search to see if I could find a number of what percentage of people are, in fact, itemizing their deductions. As of 2019, they're estimating that 13.7% of people itemize, which is a low number. That's a very low number. It compares to 31.1% pre-Tax Cut and Jobs Act law. Well, and that's the the final thing that I think we're going to bring this home with, is to remember, if you're in this situation where you're going... How do I lower my taxes? How do I lower my taxes? How do I lower my taxes? Is to remember that we need to be thinking about taxes over the long term. Taxes in one year, that's how we all tend to think about it. It's filing time. We're looking at the taxes. We're going, what can I do? But from a planning perspective, what we want to be thinking is in multi-year segments in terms of your tax liability. And the current law says that at the end of 2025, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expires. That's going to really affect people in a couple categories, Dan. You pointed them out to me before our show. 
What are the main people that are going to be really affected by that? Well, so the first thing is the tax brackets are going to shift pretty dramatically. So all the rates are effectively going to go up for for every dollar of income that you're earning. That's meaningful on its face. The other people it's going to affect are business owners. Right now, you get something called a QBI deduction, qualified business income deduction, or, or you're eligible for it in certain lines of work, which lops 20% off your qualified business earnings. So you get a deduction of 20% magically. That's going to go away. So if you're a business owner, planning for the expiration of that can be pretty meaningful. Now, it cuts both ways too, because some people who have been hurt by the Tax Cut and Jobs Act are people who live in states with high state income taxes, high property taxes, because they limit your state and local taxes to $10,000 per year of deduction. And some people are paying a lot more than that. Yeah. So particularly like New York, California are the ones that come to mind where that salt cap, that state and local tax that's referred to as the salt cap, that has been a huge hindrance to people in those states and has been very unpopular as a result in those places. Yeah. It's not hard to cap out on $10,000 if you own a home and earn a reasonable income. Yeah. So depending on where you are, um, that could help or hurt you when we get to 2026. Depending on who's in office, we have no idea. So we're not predicting exactly what's going to happen there. But just be aware that the current legislation says rates are going up. And when you're doing your tax planning, whether it's with your financial planner or your CPA, it's worth asking what your return might look like at the expiration of these laws so you can plan ahead. So some people who are going to benefit from the expiration of these laws might change the way they're saving in pre-tax versus after-tax, might be able to defer income until later, and vice versa. Talk with someone. You should do projections both short-term over the next few years and over your lifetime into retirement. Yeah, we use a really cool tool in our practice called Holista Plan that lets us basically model that out and, and you can switch it to 2026 tax rates. You can basically build in an estimate of what inflation the number they're using because generally there is an inflation number baked into how those brackets move throughout time. And yeah, we, we can do models of it. It's been really, as, as nerds in what we're doing here, I, I find it really interesting, but I think it helps make better decisions on what makes more sense today, Roth versus traditional and more. And so if, you know, what it comes down to for me, honestly, if you can't find a meaningful reason to do one or the other, split the difference. 90% of the time, that's my answer. If I can't find one being like really powerfully the the major win is just do half Roth, half traditional. But again, it can be more nuanced than that if you've got better control or better kind of visibility into what's going to happen in your situation. Yeah. Every time you're evaluating a decision, it sounds like you need to come to an answer of all or nothing. And that's never true. Almost never true. You can always do the middle, especially in finance. Hedge your bets. Yeah. I mean, even the guy that invented the asset allocation model, I believe, like back in the 50s, the the original modern portfolio theory, he, he came up with all this advanced technology on on kind of what's the perfect mix of you know, risk to get the the best risk adjusted return. They finally said, "Well, how do you invest your money?" He said, "Well, fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds, because I'm worried about missing out and I'm worried about a crash." So, <laughs> after all of that science backed, you know, looking at the situation, he went, eh, "I don't know, fifty fifty call." <laughs> he basically flipped a coin. That's pretty funny. I hope that's a real story. I, I heard that told at one point, so I, I have not verified that, but I, I always thought that was funny. 
Well, we put it on tape, so it's a real story now. It's a real story now. We've at least retold it. So if it wasn't true then, uh, it's, it's still out there. Well, that is it for our show today. We hope that tax time is not a stressful one for you and that you get everything filed and taken care of safely, securely, all of that good stuff. If you've got questions for Dan and I, check your balances at Outlook.com. We appreciate you tuning in this week, and we will catch you all next time.